invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. I'll read from verse 1 to verse 13. And this is God's holy word. So let us hear it together. Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. And I'll repeat that last phrase, given to hospitality. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, help us to understand what your word teaches us and commands us to do. And I pray that we would honor you, love your people, and love Christ. For his name's sake, amen. Paul here commands us in verse 13, in the second half of the verse, to be given to hospitality. And that will be my focus this evening. Hospitality. Hospitality. Hospitality shows that Christians are like the very God who saved them. God brings the stranger home. He embraces the prodigal son. He brings earth's wayfaring strangers to heaven's eternal home. Hospitality is a great supportive ministry to many other commands of God. It aids us in evangelism and in edifying God's people. Hospitality builds relationships that endure the passing of years, relationships that withstand the attacks of rumors and suspicion. Hospitality is a major way that God works through his people to show his mercy, grace, and power, love, justice, holiness, and all the rest. The truth of his gospel is displayed to other believers and to unbelievers through hospitality. The lack of hospitality among Christ's people 
is disobedience to the command of Paul here in this text and several other texts. And it's a cause of much dishonor to Christ. The lack of hospitality leads to Christians not knowing one another. Churches who neglect their visitors. It causes us to fail to fulfill the one another commands of the New Testament. A lack of hospitality weakens our witness to the world. It prevents us from forming relationships with the people around us and leaves our Christian witness safely caged up behind the opaque walls of our houses rather than shining forth the glory of Christ to all those around us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, through his servant, the Apostle Paul, commands us to the practice of hospitality. So I will pursue this theme of hospitality tonight, with God's help, by asking a series of questions and attempting answers to those questions with support from the Word of God. And I really prepared this message for myself, so you get to overhear it. Sometimes we preach things that we think we have a special ability or success in, and sometimes we preach something because we realize how woefully negligent we've been, how weak we are in it. And that's my situation here. Hospitality. What is commanded in our text? I'm taking it as a command, and I hope you will. As we work through it, you'll see why I do take it that way. What is commanded here? Well, first, let's understand the context that we're in. Remember where we are. We're in Romans 12. In Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul has proved that man's sin is so awful that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God turns the unthankful Gentiles over to their self-destroying perversions, and he consigns religious hypocrites to destruction in hellfire for doing the very things they condemn others for. That's in Romans chapter 2. How might such vile sinners be made right with God? Praise God. Romans chapter 3 tells us that God has provided it himself. He's provided the righteousness of God to all and upon all them that believe. We're justified by faith through the righteousness of Christ. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that salvation. Now in union with Christ, we live by his life since we died in his death. We rose again with him when he rose again, and we rose again because of him when he regenerated us by the Holy Spirit. The shackles of the law have fallen off from our hands and feet. Now we live out the righteousness of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's electing grace and purpose that he set in himself before time began is the ground of all this amazing work so we can rest secure in his glorious salvation, Romans chapter 8. Now on the basis of this, Jew and Gentile believers, weak and strong believers, tempted and victorious believers should all humble themselves before God, Romans chapter 12, where we are. Offer themselves as living sacrifices to God and avoid conforming to this wicked world that God delivered them from. Instead, they should be transformed by the renewing of their minds by the power of the Spirit and offer themselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. That's where we are in Romans chapter 12. And in this chapter itself, uh, verse 3 through 8 are Paul's command that our self-offering to God should include humble self-evaluation in fervent pursuit of God's gifting to us. If you notice in 3 through 8 there, He's talking about people ministering, either teaching or preaching or 
um, serving one another in the body. He talks about the gifting that's given to us, and we are to serve God according to that gifting he gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit in faith, not in the flesh. Prophesying, ministering, teaching, exhorting, not as self-gratifying, hot-headed individuals, but as members of a body called the church. Gifted by God, empowered by the Spirit, and faith. And then verses 9 through 13, Paul changes his style of writing. If you've noticed in the book of 1 Corinthians, as another example of where Paul dramatically changes his style, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's been writing exhortations all through 1 Corinthians. Then when he gets to 13, all of a sudden it's a poem. Then he switches back to exhortations in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Well, he kind of does something similar here in Romans 12. It's not quite a poem, but verses 9 through 13 are a poetic list of descriptions of Christian living together with each other in the church of Christ. And it's a little bit harder to see in the English than it is in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but you know, using tools, you can kind of see what's going on. Well, all of them are adjectives, participles, formed from verbs, adjectives formed from verbs, verses 9 through 13, and it begins, you'll notice in the King James, they put let at the beginning of verse 9 because they see that this is prescriptive descriptions of what the Christian life is supposed to be. And that's why I said at the beginning, we're dealing with a command here. And as you work through them, you can see that's clearly the case. He says let, and let is in italics. The King James translators added it, but they added it for good reason. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. And hospitality is where he ends that little set of participles that are all in a list and that describe the Christian life from 9 to 13 there. So hospitality is kind of his climax. That's what he works up to at verse 13. Paul is calling us here in chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, to be what we ought to be. Verse 13 is the end of that section, and then Paul switches in verse 14 to focus the rest of the chapter on dealing with the hostile world around the believer, persecution, dealing with the wicked who oppose believers. And then chapter 13, he moves into dealing with how we are to respond to government. So this little section of 9 to 13 is, even though it's descriptive, it's prescriptive. It's a prescription of what we should be. So when he says, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, that given to hospitality is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ given to his churches through the Apostle Paul. But observe from what we've seen just as we've run through Romans, as we're here in this part of Romans, this is not the part of Romans that tells us how to be saved, right? That was at the beginning of Romans. He talked about sin and justification and so on. This command and these commands here are for believers. So this message is primarily for believers, although the gospel comes in everywhere and it'll come in here too. Those who are already justified, who are being sanctified, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and live by faith, this command of hospitality, 
is for us believers. This command is for those who are being renewed in their mind, turning away from worldly selfishness. This command is in a context focused on the church. This is a duty that is best exercised within the church. But let's look at the verse itself, the words themselves. There's only three words in our text, given to hospitality. The first two words, given to, can be translated pursue or follow. And actually, because it's in a participle form, it's pursuing or following. And it's exactly the same word in the original that is translated persecute in many passages. In fact, most of the times when it's used, more than half the times it's used in the New Testament, it is translated as persecute. It has the connotation of an intense driving pursuit. It doesn't just mean kind of giving it a shot now and then, but it means pursuing it with passion. Persecute hospitality. Pursue hospitality. Make sure you catch that bird. Imagine Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor. If he knew how to use that word, he was the master of it. Imagine him hot on the trail of Christian defectors from Judaism. Imagine him breathing out cruelty and hatred on the meek lovers of Christ. Now this same man who could say, I persecuted the church of God, can now say, persecute, pursue hospitality with a white-hot heat, with passion, with self-denial, with urgency, and with much dedication. Paul chose a very active word, an explosive word, packed with urgency, pursue hospitality. And that's why the King James translators gave it given to hospitality. They knew we wouldn't appreciate it very much if they put persecute hospitality, so they put given to hospitality. But then this word hospitality, what is it? Does it mean open a hotel? The original word in our text literally means stranger love, showing kindness and care to those who you were not previously acquainted with. Love for strangers. Love for those who are foreign to us. But the word and the way it's used, it is not restricted to actual strangers. As I already mentioned in passing, Paul's primary concern is for our care for the brethren, although it extends to all men. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter makes the same emphasis using a similar word. He says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. And so he says, use love for strangers to one another without grudging. So it's not formally strangers that he's talking about. He's talking about brethren, but showing hospitality to them. Hospitality can be used to mean entertaining friends or strangers in your home, but it can include any display of care, concern, or kindness done to others even outside the home. It can mean taking a meal to someone's house. It can mean performing menial tasks for those in need. And by extension, hospitality is related to a larger responsibility of showing kindness and care to all kinds of men, and especially to the household of faith. A glass of water, a gift, helping someone with chores, any token of kindness that brings someone into your circle of care. Hospitality connects people at a human level that should lead them to a higher level. So let's consider next, what are some examples of hospitality in the Bible? We've heard what hospitality, what it means here in this text, but what are some examples of hospitality 
in the scriptures. And I'll give you four examples. Abraham, in Genesis 18, you don't have to turn there, the day was too hot to do much else, and so Abraham was sitting in his tent. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them, bowed himself to the ground, and called them not to pass by him. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that, you shall pass on. They said, go ahead and get it ready. So Abraham hastened into the tent to his wife. Quick, fix bread for three, knead it, and cook it on the hearth. Abraham then ran to the herd, picked out the tenderest and best calf, and called a servant to butcher it up. He wanted to serve the finest veal to his visitors. Abraham then took butter, milk, and the fine veal, all nicely roasted, and set it before the men. And he stood by them under the tree, waited on them while they ate. Now, you know the rest of the story. One of these men, in quotation marks, is the Lord Jehovah. He's about to make a stupendous promise of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. The other two men are angels from heaven. The city of Sodom is about to be roasted in a fire much hotter than Abraham's barbecue pit. But consider how the New Testament emphasizes Abraham's example for us in Genesis 18. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So it takes Abraham's example and says, don't forget to do what he did. Entertaining strangers for Abraham included eager, costly, generous, time-consuming, attention-focused care. That first verb that it uses in the text of Genesis 18 there to describe what he did is ran. Abraham ran to go out and meet them and to invite them to his meal. The second example is Rebecca, Isaac's bride-to-be. Just like Abraham called to the three men to stop and refresh their souls, Rebekah said to Eliezer, Drink, my lord. And she hasted to let down her pitcher upon her hand. He was a stranger to her. But she invited him to enjoy this refreshment. Just like Abraham ran to meet the men, Rebekah runs to draw water for Eliezer's camels. Rebekah ran to her brother Laban. Laban ran to meet Eliezer and welcomed him in. Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. Wherefore standest thou without? We see that same eagerness, readiness to serve a stranger, a visitor, a foreigner, a sojourner. A third example, Rahab the harlot in the city of Jericho. She risked her life, opened her home, and hid two spies from the Israelite camp. Faith in God, fear of God's power, and awe at the supernaturally empowered Israelite army drove her. And Hebrews 11 emphasizes her act of hospitality when it says, By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And that word received is a major word in the scripture for welcoming a visitor or a stranger. It means to take someone in, to show them hospitality. Jesus said, if you receive one of these little ones, you've received me. How do you receive someone? You show them hospitality. Faith gave Rahab that same eagerness and readiness to serve the spies, even at the risk of her own life. She hid them in the flax on the roof. The fourth example, we come to Luke chapter 7, the last half of the chapter. And this is a hospitality story with a surprising twist. The guest is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. The host is supposed to be Simon the Pharisee. But it turns out that sin, a sinful woman from the streets of the village becomes the true hostess, 
that night. Simon the Pharisee told Jesus to come to his house. He served his heavenly guest a meal, but Simon's heart was cold and loveless toward Christ. I think we would have felt uneasy at Simon's house that night when Jesus was there. You know how it is when someone has you over, but you have nothing to connect with them about. Someone has you over, but you can kind of tell that they have some other motive going on in having you over, and they cook up uninteresting topics of conversation, and they never get real with you, and you never get real with them. And at the end, you're just like, well, we talked about everything, but we didn't talk about anything. And I imagine, not on Christ's part, but on Simon's part, it must have been something like that. He had no love for Christ. He probably was trying to see if he could find something wrong with Christ. Well, in that uncomfortable, awkward Pharisee home that night, all of a sudden, you can hear the sound of weeping, sobbing, not in front of Jesus at the table, but behind him, behind his low bench where he reclines, there's this sound of weeping. A bottle of ointment is broken open, and its rich and beautiful smell fills the house. Look behind Jesus. What do you see there? A woman. A woman battered and broken, dirty, defiled, filthy with sin. But what is she doing? She is receiving Jesus. Just like the harlot Rahab, moved by faith, received the spies, this woman, moved by faith, receives Jesus. She is so eager for Jesus' presence as her guest that even though she has no house to receive him into, she hijacks Simon's hospitality and takes it over. She spares no tears, no expense. She's full of eagerness, desire, love. She wastes her money, washes Jesus' feet, and gives him the warmest welcome, the social kiss of affection, respect, and honor. She stole the Pharisee's social time, hijacked his hospitality, and took the position of hostess for herself. You see that same eagerness, love, care, generosity that you saw with Abraham, Rebecca, and Rahab. There are too many examples of hospitality in Scripture. It's a huge topic. And if you have time to do a study on the words hospitable, hospitality, stranger, receive, and so forth, guest, do it. Do a study on those words in the Scripture. It's a rich study and very rewarding. But notice the common features that we saw in those examples. Demonstrated affection, kisses, embraces, touches. Secondly, expense. Abraham's whole calf, a box of expensive ointment. Time spent drawing water for a bunch of camels, Rahab risking her life, expense. Thirdly, eagerness. Abraham ran. Rebecca ran. The woman wept behind Jesus. Eagerness, desire. This is not some, well, I guess I have to. It's eager desire to serve. Fourthly, food, drink, or lodging. Sit here under the tree. Come up here on the rooftop best calf, water from a pitcher. There's something shared. It's not hospitality per se if you just talk to someone. That is care and that is concern and that is a great thing. That's not quite hospitality. There has to be a little bit of food, a little bit of something to drink or a place to stay. If you get one of those, then you've got some hospitality. So we've seen what hospitality is in our text and we've seen some examples from scripture but why should we show hospitality? Why do you think Paul would command us here to show hospitality? Of course, we could say, well, God has commanded it. Good, we can leave it there. But there is a great 
reason why God has given us this command. And that's, that's true for all the commands of Scripture. None of God's commands are simply arbitrary or gratuitous. They're not, it's not like God just sit up there in heaven and thought, well, what kind of rules could I make up for these people? God has given us all of his laws, all of his commands for his glory and for our eternal good. So why does he tell us to show hospitality? Well, God created us in his image. Adam's fall into sin plunged every one of us into a state of defiling and destroying that image. Christ restores us to the image of God. And Paul tells the Colossians, you, Christians, have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Restoration of the image of God. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, etc., etc. So we should expect that in some way or another the commands of God given to us help us imitate God. And hospitality is no exception. In fact, it's a major way of us imitating God. Our God is the most hospitable being in the universe and the most generous host you ever saw. We should show hospitality then because God is our example of being a host. God, the heavenly householder, made a home called Eden for Adam and Eve. He boarded it with rivers, filled its cupboards with food, decked its halls with singing birds, and provisioned its treasuries with gold. Then he said to Adam and Eve, this is all yours. Come on in, make yourselves at home. At God's house, the guests were fully provided for and invested with all the privileges that they could want. Oh, but sin alienated and deprived mankind of this wonderful arrangement. God chased him out of the garden, Adam and Eve. He cursed him, and he shut the door to that mansion that he had invited them into, and he put a flaming sword, a heavenly security guard, to keep those guests from coming back. Sin made friends into enemies, family members into strangers, foreigners, sojourners in this world. God turned his guests out of doors and threw them in the streets, no more of his trees. Now they had to scratch in the dust and fight with weeds to eke out their existence. Now they are strangers in the earth. And Cain, his great complaint when God put his curse on Cain for killing his brother was, I am a sojourner in the earth, a wanderer. But watch what God did. Not only did God first put man in the position of his blessed guest in the Garden of Eden, but when God had righteously and justly chased him out of his guest house, God promised, pictured, and provided a generous invitation back home for those that sin had cast out of doors. And that's the story of the entire Bible. Really, the entire Bible is the story of God as the great host and as man, the great stranger, the great sojourner, the foreigner. So God promised hospitality to his people. He pictured hospitality to his fallen people, and he provided hospitality for his fallen people. God promised it. As soon as God had turned man's dream of a tower of Babel into rubble, then he goes to Abraham and invites him to be his guest. He says, all right, Abraham, you've been chased out of the Garden of Eden. The Tower of Babel, Babel has, has, that project has been called off, but I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make you blessed and I'm going to give you a place to stay, the land, a roof over your head, food to eat. I'm going to give you blessing. All who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. I'll protect you from your enemies, and I'll give you everything you need. 
And then as God unfolded his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, he pictured hospitality to his people in Israel's deliverance from Egypt, slavery, in a foreign land where they were in a house, a house of Egypt. The term is used even though it was a nation. But they were in the house of Egypt. He delivers them from that house and he brings them to the land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. Israel lived as strangers, foreigners, landless slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And when God brought them out, he repeated the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of a place to stay and a roof over their head. And he made a law that the Israelites couldn't sell their inheritance permanently. Leviticus 25, 23, for a particular reason. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. In other words, it's not yours. I'm bringing you into a land, but it's not your land. I'm the host. I'm the landlord, God says. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And that's why all through the the law of Moses, the, the first five books of the Bible, we have so many commands to care for the strangers and sojourners because God reminds Israel, you are sojourners in Egypt, and I gave you a place to stay. God's language here of you are strangers and sojourners with me, don't sell the land, that's the language of a host. You're my guests. Here's some rules for the house. You have to keep these rules to stay in the house. Don't sell it out from under me. I hold the keys. You get to stay in my land if you keep my rules. In other words, you're the guests. I'm the host. I bring you in because of my grace and mercy. God commanded the Israelites also to make a little ceremony when they had received their full inheritance in the land and when they had made their first harvest of crops in the land of promise, Deuteronomy 26. And I'll read that there, Deuteronomy 26. You can turn there if you'd like. And verses 5 and following. I won't read every word. God said, when you, when you take of the first fruit of the earth at the beginning of the chapter, then he says, you'll come to the priest, and verse 4, and the priest will take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Verse 5, and thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And hath brought us into this place and hath given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now behold, I've brought the first fruits of the land. And then in verse 11, he says, Thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee, and unto thine house thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. And then in the next few verses, he mentions the stranger again. What are the connections there? The connections are, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I called you out of Egypt and gave you a place to stay. Now treat the strangers with respect. In other words, do what I did to you, God is saying. What is that? The image of God. Be like God. God has delivered you from Egypt so that you can do what God did, show kindness to strangers. And that comes to us directly as Christians. Has God not taken us out of the house of bondage? Were we not strangers without God in this world, hopeless and helpless, and God called us out? 
He didn't come to us when we were clean and when we were orderly and when everything was right with us, but he delivered us from our foreignness, from our strangeness, from our distance from him. But not only did he picture hospitality for us, and not only did he promise it to us in what he did with Israel, but he also provided for heavenly hospitality in the person of his son. When he spent the price, the cost of exchanging his son for the stranger and the stranger for his son. Now the rent is paid and the divine host has rooms all set up for his people in heaven. Substitution is about a swap of places for strangers and sons. Substitution, God the Father putting our sins upon his son and putting his righteousness on us. It's about wandering, cast out strangers taking the place of the son. The son was put out of doors, suffering alone as a stranger on a hill outside the city of God. But the strangers are brought into the city and into the house to dine at the table. Oh, there's so much more to say about the gospel as a picture of hospitality. Or rather, hospitality is a picture of the gospel. It's all through the Bible. There's a lot to it. But just realize this. Hospitality is a gospel command. It's not just a command. It's a gospel command because it mirrors for us, it pictures for us so clearly God's work of salvation. God is all about providing lodging for wayfaring wanderers. Christ's work is the fair paid. Christ is the son who paid it and the honored host now as well. Christ has prepared a place, and he's eager, like Abraham was eagerly running out to meet his visitors. He is eager to receive his people to their mansions, prepared for them in his father's house. And remember, those that he's bringing in, those who are now his children, they're not children by any merit of their own. We're like the children of Israel. God said, I didn't bring you in this land because you were more righteous than other nations. I did it for my glory. In other words, we haven't somehow earned it by getting saved and now we're better off than everybody else and we stopped doing bad stuff and we started doing good stuff and now we're all good. So now we have a place in heaven. No, it's that he's done it all for us. He took us from our filth and our dirt and our perversion and he's brought us into the house. Praise his name. Glorify him. So we should show hospitality because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a new point, but I didn't bold it. And so I didn't say it like one. God has pictured, promised for us, pictured for us, and provided hospitality for us in his son. But also, why should we show hospitality? We must show hospitality as believers because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on this earth, as a man, was a wonderful host like his father. Remember, this is our Savior. When we talk about Christ, we're talking about the one who gave himself for our sins. It should give us great joy to think about Christ as the host. We meet him in John chapter 1. And how does John introduce Jesus? Introduces him, first of all, from a heavenly perspective, saying who he is. He's the word who was with God and was God. In the beginning with God, he created all things. Then he tells us that he became a man, that he um, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then he gives us the perspective of John the Baptist. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then he says, Two of John's disciples were with him the next day. And those two disciples were following John. And John shouted again, Behold, the Lamb of God. And those two disciples, they said, Well, this is the Lamb of God. We better go follow him. And so they off, went off and followed Jesus. 
And Jesus turned around. And he said, what seek ye? What are you looking for? Why are you following me? Master, where dwellest thou? In other words, teacher, where do you live? Come and see. That's beautiful. The Lord Jesus, he came and tabernacled with us, and now he lets us tabernacle with him. He came and pitched his tent, not so that we could look from a distance and say, there's Jesus' tent, but so we, he could say to us, come and see. Come and see. And Jesus says to each one of us, come and see. Come and see. And it says they abode with him that day. And I think that means overnight, although it's not absolutely clear. It might be just the rest of the day because it says four, it was the 10th hour. That's two hours before sundown, like, you know, in the evening. So it would make sense that the idea of they stayed with him that day because it was the 10th hour is they stayed with him overnight. Jesus said, come on, I've got some food for us all, and I've got some things to talk about, and I've got a place for you all to stay. The tent Jesus pitched was not for himself. It was for visitors to come. And it wasn't a tent, it was a house, but I'm using it in that sense because he came and tabernacled among us, and now we can tabernacle with him. Then we move to John 4. Look at him worn out and thirsty by serving his father, seated on a well at Sychar. He asks an outcast Samaritan woman to show hospitality to him. Give me a drink. And then he turns the rolls around and invites her to drink living water that he carries with him and for her to come and live forever in his house. Then go to Matthew 15 and see Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the coasts of Syrophoenicia, sharing miracle-working grace with that persistent woman who deserved no more inclusion in Jesus' Jewish world than a dog. In answer to his mock rebuffs, she insists that she can huddle under his table and eat crumbs, and Jesus lets her do it. In fact, he gives her the best plate at the table. He delivers her daughter from demon possession. No crumbs for this woman. Give her the best. Jump to John 13. See our Lord Jesus wrapping a towel around himself. What's that for? What is a towel for? It's not some strange dress that someone used to wear back in the Middle East in the old days. It's for hospitality. What is he going to do to these 12 men seated in front of him? He's going to wash their feet. He put a towel on to do what a slave does when he gets ready to do the key hospitality task of receiving a weary traveler into the home, washing their feet. Abraham, remember, washed the three men's feet. You might have missed that. I think I've missed it most of my life. I don't think I ever noticed that he washed their feet, but it says that. Laban washed Eliezer's feet. Eliezer's a slave, by the way, a privileged slave, the top slave of Abraham, and probably pretty high up if you're that. But Laban washed his feet. Joseph's servant washed Joseph's brother's feet. Simon the Pharisee did not wash Jesus' feet, and Jesus rebuked him for it. But the sinful woman took that role and washed his feet with her tears and with that ointment. And Jesus, the great host, made himself the slave of his disciples. I came not, he said, to be served, but to serve, and to give my life a ransom, for many love compelled him. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. Expense, the expense of his reputation as a teacher, did not stop him. Trial did not faze him. The devil had now put in the heart of Simon to betray him. Simon, Judas, 
the devil having now put in Judas's heart to betray him. So the devil had already entered into Judas, and the Lord Jesus knew that, it appears. And he is not phased. He serves his disciples. He's not distracted by his own personal concerns, but he gives himself in hospitality to his disciples. His holy fire of passion for his mission as the great host empowered him to this act of lowly service. Then hear his words. What does he tell us? As our Savior and Lord. Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. What is washing feet? We could start a ceremony, and we could have it at the end of every service where we all wash each other's feet. That might give us some benefit, especially when we take our shoes off, then we probably might need it. But the Lord Jesus is at least telling us to show hospitality to one another. So we've seen the Lord Jesus in many contexts, but now go up that Mount Calvary, go to that cross with holy fear and solemnity as you see a man hanging upon that cross, and not just one man, but three men hanging on crosses there at the top of Calvary, and join those sorrowing crowds of onlookers, the women who looked on, and see our blessed Lord Jesus Christ hanging helpless and naked upon that cross. But even in that agony and terror of death, he is the great hotelier, and he hears a knock on the door of the inn of paradise. While our Savior is deep in the darkest night of his soul, surely he could be excused from a call to hospitality. But no, he hears a knock at the gate, a call from outside. Now, remember, he's outside. He has been cast out of the city. Hebrews makes that point. It says, let us go out outside the camp with him, bearing his reproach because Christ was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, a symbol of his being cast off, cast off from God's presence, cast off from God's people as well. The Jews rejected him, and God the Father rejected him. The, the, the curse of the law of sin is upon him. The Jews, of course, for totally different reasons than the Father. The Father is placing sin upon Christ because he is the substitute, the one who has volunteered to take it upon himself and worthy. He's, he's, he is of great value and he can carry such a weight. The Jews have chased him out of the city because they hate him and they want to destroy him. So they have taken the son and turned him into a stranger. They have taken the one who is worthy of being received into the city. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And they have driven him out. He is now a stranger. He is now a sojourner. He has no place in the city of God. But he hears a knock at the gate. He hears a call from a stranger. Who is that stranger? He's a thief. A murderer an insurrectionist, an outcast from society, a blight on the nation. While Jesus hangs as the great Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the one knocking at the gate is a lowlifer, part of the underworld, a dark and loathsome creature. We ourselves would take no notice of him. We, we, if we passed by, like the crowds who passed by, we might smite our breasts and return at the sight of Christ, but we would surely take no notice of that scoundrel, that thief, that worthless bundle of flesh, not fit to live. It's good the law got him. 
was time to clean up our streets. But Jesus hears him knocking. And Jesus hears that stranger's call. And what does Jesus do? He is the great hospitable one, the great host of all hosts. He's the heir of heaven's landlord, the hotelier from heaven's inn. And he says to the wandering man knocking at the gate, come in, come in. Today, today, no, no reason to wait, my friend. Come in to paradise, paradise. Not a calf, not some water, not a bed to sleep in. Paradise. What's the cost? Knocking. Have you knocked? He'll let you in. He'll let you in. He is the great host. He is. Praise his name. Notice his eagerness, like Abraham. He runs to bring the man in. Then move to John 21. You know all about Peter's last fishing trip. And yes, he did catch a bunch of fish, and they were big ones. But Peter's story of that fishing trip would have nothing to do with boats and big fish and fancy toys. The apostle Peter had been a cowardly Peter, a Christ-denying Peter, a slave girl-fearing Peter. He has heard a, a cock crow. He has wept great, bitter tears of pain and sorrow for denying his Lord. And as he strikes out on that lake, maybe in a sense of worthlessness, rejection, what do I do now? What does Peter see? He sees a man on the shore. He sees a fire of coals, a breakfast of bread and fish. And this man on the shore is none other than his Lord and King, his rabbi, his teacher. He's the Messiah's soul's desire. Peter throws on his coat and swims to shore out of the boat. In this case, Peter is running because he knows Christ's heart toward him. Peter swims to this man on the shore and Jesus serves him his breakfast. This is that, that Peter who feared a slave girl. But the great host restores the Christ denier and gives him a commission to show hospitality himself to Christ's sheep. What does he tell him to do? Be a host to my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. If you're a sojourner this evening, a stranger because of sin, cast out of God's presence, which we all were or are, every last one of us were cast out of God's presence. That's why there are thorns and thistles. That's why there's death. And death is the, the ultimate form of being cast off from the blessings that God has left in this world. It is to be cast out of God's presence for those who know not God. We were cast out of God's presence because of sin. But oh, my friend, like Adam, all you can expect is thorns and thistles, sweat and pain, futility and pain in this life, and then dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. But listen, there's a voice. Just like on the cross, the Lord Jesus said to that man today, You'll be with me in paradise. Someone has seen you as a sojourner as you passed by. And he calls out, Ho, oh, you despairing sinner, come and trust upon the Lord. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, strangers, sojourners are often poor. He that hath no money, come ye, 
buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Do it. You're not too poor for that purchase. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's already paid for. It's already purchased. So that's why I say hospitality is a gospel command. It's like Christ, and it pictures Christ to those in the world around us, those who are either those who are lost and separated from society in some way or fellow believers. When we show hospitality one to another, love, care, kindness, generosity, it is a form of being like God, like Christ, in bringing others into our circle of care. So why should we pursue hospitality? It's like God. It's like Christ, our Savior, while he was on the earth. And another reason is hospitality marvelously serves as a tool for God's redemptive purposes for the lost and for the saved to be edified. Hospitality both exemplifies the gospel call and also is a wonderful platform for sharing the gospel for salvation and edification. Remember that God summoned all of Israel three times a year to come to his house and feast with him. As they feasted and praised and talked and rejoiced at the Feast of Tabernacles in every seventh year, the heads of the nation would read the law before all Israel in their hearing. I don't know if you'd like to sit down, stand up in a great crowd and listen to the book of Deuteronomy being read, the entire book. But it appears that's what they did, either a portion of it or the entire book, although it may refer to the entire law of Moses, but I don't think so. I think it was the book of Deuteronomy. He said, gather, in Deuteronomy 31, gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. So why do you go up to God's house? Why does he say, come, come and eat here. Come and enjoy some food here at my house. And, and he says, if it's too far for you to, to, to bring all your stuff then sell your crops back at home and buy whatever your soul desires and come and feast here at my house. God says, let's have a get-together at my house. What are we going to do? We're going to eat, but that's not all. We're going to read the entire law of God. Why? Because hospitality is a great time to move from earth to heaven. It's a great time to move from man's provision for another man to God's provision for hungry souls, cast-off souls, stranger souls, foreigner souls, and I'm speaking in a metaphorical sense. Jesus fed the multitudes in John chapter 6, and then he taught them. He taught them so hard that many of them didn't like him anymore, even though he fed them. Jesus calls us to meet with him on the Lord's day to learn of him in the context of a meal, the Lord's Supper. Hospitality provides a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel and to edify, encourage, and build up God's people. Am I saying you have to feed somebody every time you share the gospel? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just observing that hospitality, kindness, a display of love from the great householder in heaven is an ordained part of evangelism and edification. And he commands us to do it. He says, do this. Hospitality connects us at a human level that should lead us on to a higher level. So who should be the objects of this hospitality? First, our church family. The context in our main text, Romans 12, 13, it seems that the church family is the primary focus of the command there. 
And we see this exemplified so many places in the New Testament. The brethren broke bread from house to house in Acts 2 and 3. The widows in Acts 6 were cared for daily by the church. The awful example of Lord's Supper perversions in 1 Corinthians 11 shows us by contrast that Paul expected the local church to have warm and generous times of food fellowship together, not selfish, drunken times together. But not only should we show kindness and love to the local church, but we should show it to other believers. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, it says um, there in Hebrews 13, and I didn't copy it here, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And there he appears to be talking about believers, because all the context is about believers, and then, but he's also emphasizing the fact that they're strangers, which would be different than someone who is in your church. So he seems to be telling us to show kindness to sojourning believers who might be passing through. What about the exhortation of Paul in Romans 16, 1 through 3? I, com I commend to you Phoebe, take care of her, because she's cared for many. And Paul's, Paul also expected Philemon, in the book of Philemon, that he would prepare a guest room for Paul. And that's what the word lodging there, and I think it's verse 22, means is a guest room, a place for me to stay. Paul says, I expect that when I come, you'll have a room for me. And so even those outside our local church, preachers, apostles, I don't think there's any apostles now, but if the apostle Paul was coming through, we should make a room for him and have it ready. We should show kindness and hospitality to our elders and expect it from our elders. This is seen both by the man... <clears throat> this is seen in the New Testament by the many commands to know and provide for our elders, and also by their example set by Paul in Acts 20, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, and he says that he taught the people publicly and from house to house. And so there should be this interchange of hospitality that helps us to benefit from one another in the church, other believers, elders, and preachers, and teachers, apostles. And then we should show hospitality to our flesh and blood family, our nuclear family, and also our extended family. Maybe we wouldn't call it hospitality because we don't consider them strangers or guests, but if food and fellowship and eager kindness is so important to show to strangers and wanderers and sojourners, then what about your own family? Your parents, your grandparents, your children, your siblings. As I was preparing this and thinking about hospitality in the scriptures, I was just flipping through Genesis looking at the examples of hospitality. And in addition to the examples of hospitality, there are horrible examples of inhospitality, no hospitality. Remember Esau coming in from the field and he comes to his blood brother. Abraham ran to meet those strangers and fed them and cared for them. But think of Jacob cooking his pot of beans and he sees his brother coming his way out of the field, sweaty, hot, he's famished, he has no water, he has no food, he's about to die. He says, my soul is famished in me, I'm about to die. I don't care about anything but food. And does Jacob run to him and say, oh, my brother, what can I get you? How can I care for you? You're my brother. You were born, we are twins. I should love you like my own. No, he says, hey, uh, don't look at those beans. Um, the birthright? Can I have uh, some, I mean, not some of that, all of it. Give it all to me. I'll give you a bite of beans if you give me your birthright. Scoundrel. He didn't offer him a fatted calf. He refused him his beans. 
And instead of a generous offering, he strikes a dastardly deal. Hey, you younger, hungry brother of mine about to starve, I love you enough to make you pay for this little bit I have, and I'm going to make you pay all you've got. So we should show hospitality, kindness, generosity to our families. And then we should show hospitality to the needy around us. Jesus said, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors. And Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. The Lord Jesus often put things in black and white terms. When he says, don't call your neighbors, don't call your brethren, he's actually not telling us not to call our brethren. He's saying, don't do that so much. Do this instead. So he says, call not those rich neighbors and kinsmen and brethren, lest they also bid thee again and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the blamed, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. And then we should show hospitality also to the lost, to those around us who are lost, maybe not needy, they're lost. Follow the example of Christ who went about doing good. And what did that good include? Pastor Clarence often reminded us of this. He said, the Lord Jesus did good to men's bodies and men's souls. And that's what we should do. We should show kindness to their bodies and their souls. We don't only love their souls. We're not in heaven yet. We're still on earth. We love people. And people are made of bodies and souls. So how should we show hospitality? And I won't give a lot of time to these um, last parts, but how should we show hospitality? There's an attitude that goes with it, and we've seen it. We've seen that eagerness with which Abraham ran. We saw that eagerness with which um, Laban ran to meet Eliezer. We saw the, the, the readiness even to risk her own life of Rahab in hiding the men on her roof. There's an eagerness about hospitality that is appropriate. And it's reflected in our text. Here in Romans chapter 12, he says, given to hospitality. Given to it. Not just, you know, tack it on at the end of the week sometimes, but given to it. Or as literally translated, pursuing, persecuting, again, hospitality. Just like Saul of Tarsus was on a horse because his own legs couldn't carry him fast enough, he was on a horse rushing to Damascus to catch those wicked Christians and throw them in jail. He was what? Persecuting Christians, pursuing them to catch them. We should get on our horse, and with Abram, we should run after hospitality. Eager readiness to spend and be spent should characterize our hospitality. And then there's the practices of hospitality. How should we show hospitality? There's a great variety. And all through the Bible, we have various examples, and the examples show us that it's not limited to what's in the Bible. Hospitality now, when we've got cell phones and um, cars and all of these things, is going to be different than hospitality then. Notice that Abraham did not invite his three visitors into the air conditioning. That's because they didn't have air conditioning. But letting someone sit in air conditioning might be a form of hospitality now, but it wasn't then. There's variety having people over, taking them cookies, mowing their lawn, watching people's children. And here's, here's a kind of backward hospitality idea. If you're real busy and you have a lot to do, ask someone to come over and help you. How does that fulfill hospitality? Well, the whole idea is bringing people together on an earthly level that leads them to a higher level. A lot of people like to be asked to do stuff. 
for you. Some people are always asking you to do stuff for them. But get involved with people. That's what hospitality is about. And our situations are all different. And we shouldn't compare ourselves to one another. We shouldn't say, well, he's able to have people over because of his life situation, but I'm not able to. A single person at home can't necessarily commandeer the whole house, his parents' house, to do hospitality on his own. But he can organize something else. He can go out to eat with his friends, or he can take a, a needy person to buy him a hamburger. or the, any. There's, there's creativity that should be employed. Families with older children will have different opportunities from families with younger children. Couples with who have grown past the age of children will have opportunities that I don't have at this time, and vice versa. As a married man, I have more opportunities than I had before. We can have single ladies over for lunch. Emily and I can. But I've lost some of the opportunities I had as well. I used to live right back here in what we called the monastery with a small group of young men. And it was a special opportunity to share with them and, to, and for them to share with me and to share food together and to even share a common fund together, not all our money, but some money in order to help them learn how to use money. And that was a great experience, especially when a maintenance person came in and stole all of our money. That was interesting too. But it was a great opportunity. I don't have that now. I have other opportunities. And so there's different times and situations that we're in in life. And so we shouldn't compare with one another. But we should pray. We should commit ourselves to God and then look for creative opportunities. But remember why we show hospitality. Hospitality glorifies the heavenly, the heavenly host, the heavenly um, God who is the host of the heavenly hotel. And when we mirror him best, we honor him most. Hospitality is a tool for sanctification of believers, as we mentioned. It's a tool for the salvation of the lost. But hospitality does not save sinners. And in itself, it doesn't edify believers. That's why God said, when you come to my house, all you Israelites, read the book of the law. Because it's not just the food that's going to edify you. It's the law. It's the word. It's the scripture. It's the truth of God's word that's going to build us up. So hospitality connects us at a human level, and it should lead us to a higher level. So brethren, let's pray and think about how to be more hospitable. Paul commanded it to us. Paul commanded us to it. God exemplifies it for us, and maybe we should make lists. I like making lists. Maybe we should make lists of ways that we can show hospitality to our own families, to our church, to our neighbors, and others around us who might be in need. And then go at it. Show hospitality with eagerness. If I see you running somewhere, I might think, oh, he's going to show hospitality to somebody. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you that you are the great inviter of strangers and that you bring them in. Lord, bring the strangers in here. Lord, those that have been cast off because of sin. And Lord, we were all born in that condition. Lord, chased away from your presence. Lord, you closed the door. You put a flaming sword and said, no more, not in my house. You can't do those things in my house. Oh, Lord, but then you made another place and another place. You brought your people in. You made them a house and you said, come to my house. Because of the blood of the sacrifice, you can now come in the door 
And, O oh Lord, thank you that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can now come in to the Holy of Holies, that we can now come closer than the Israelite could come, that we can come to your very presence. And, O oh Lord, so we ask that you would bring all of us here into your presence, that you would accept us because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and that you would teach us how to accept others because of Christ. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand with me.